ваші руки. Ви бачите чи ні, що я представник праці? Заберіть руки ваші. Заберіть ваші руки. Інформацію і транспарентність. One could argue that they define different political systems and hold societies together. For years, both information and transparency were severely restricted in authoritarian states like the Soviet Union. Today, journalists continue to fight for transparency, but the situation has changed significantly. With the collapse of the Eastern Bloc in 1989-91 and the advent and spread of the internet, it is increasingly difficult for governments to keep secrets from the public and with increased access to information comes transparency. Ukraine, like many other countries, does not have the best reputation when it comes to transparency and the spread of truthful information. In fact, Ukraine ranks 96th out of 180 countries in the 2020 World Press Freedom Index. It's improving, its 2019 ranking was 102, and both rankings are much better than where Ukraine was in 2013, before the Euromaidan revolution, which you heard in the sound clip at the beginning of this episode. However, holding the country's political leadership accountable has come at a high price. Since Ukraine gained independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, more than 50 journalists have been killed across the country, including eight since 2014. Most of the crimes have been poorly investigated and many of the killers have never faced justice. The 2014 Revolution of Dignity was deemed a turning point for freedom of speech in Ukraine President Viktor Yanukovych, who attempted to crack down on the press, was ousted. He fled to Russia. Now, Ukraine took steps to new freedoms and opportunities, but the safety of those who seek the truth is still under threat. This podcast episode is part of the Kiev Post's special project, Dying for Truth, a series of stories documenting violence against journalists in Ukraine. The project is supported by the Justice for Journalists Foundation and Reporters Without Borders. We've already published in-depth articles about the murders of journalists Georgi Gangadze, Vadim Kamarov, and Igor Alexandrov, as well as recent video stories about the killing of journalists in the 1990s and early 2000s. My name is Alina Kent, and I'm a multimedia journalist here at the Kiev Post. This episode covers attacks on and killings of journalists during Euromaidan and in the ensuing six years. Post-Maidan Ukraine was supposed to be a transparent country where the press worked uninhibited. But implementing that vision has proven a challenge, and the old ways of silencing those who push too hard for the truth remain. In 2014 was indeed a turning point for media freedom in Ukraine. Yanukovych's ouster meant greater freedom of the press in the country, but it came at a cost. That human cost has not been forgotten. The wound is very much still fresh. Just this past December of 2019, the Kyiv Court of Appeals released five former police officers of the now disbanded Berkut unit, who are on trial for murdering protesters during the Euromaidan revolution. Their release was part of the December 29th prisoner exchange, in return for 76 Ukrainians held by Russian-backed militants in the Donbass. Ukraine's 
handful of activists barricaded streets and attempted to prevent the vehicle with the Berkut officers from leaving the Lukyanovsky pre-trial detention center in the capital. To many Ukrainians, releasing the people responsible for the deaths of activists in 2014 was unforgivable. The Berkut were not just criminal defendants. They also came to symbolize the Yanukovych regime's attacks on protesters and journalists, over a hundred of whom lost their lives during Euromaidan. One of them was journalist Vyacheslav Veremy. Vyacheslav Veremy was a journalist, husband, and father. Working for the newspaper Vesti, a Russian-language daily, he was, like most others, reporting on the Euromaidan revolution. Veremy's coverage was anti-Euromaidan and the newspaper was seen as pro-Russian. On January 19, 2014, one month before his death, the 33-year-old journalist was wounded on Khrushchevsky Street. A flash grenade exploded under his feet and his glasses broke during the explosion, causing glass fragments to pierce his left eye. Viremi underwent two operations and spent three weeks on sick leave. February 18th was the first day Viremi came back to work after that incident. Following the advice of his colleagues, he decided not to cover what was happening on Maidan Nezaleznosti, the square where the protests were taking place, and instead worked in the office. He stayed in that office until midnight and then took a taxi home with his colleague. On the corner of Vladimirska and Velikozhitomirska streets, Veremy noticed people with weapons in camouflage and masks and tried to photograph them from the car. Using a grenade, the masked men forced the car to a stop and proceeded to pull out the driver and passengers and beat them with baseball bats. The driver and Veremy's colleagues were able to escape with just the beatings, while Veremy was shot in the back. He did not survive. He died on the 19th of February during surgery. The people responsible for his death were known as Titushki, men hired by the Yanukovych administration who often served as street thugs and violently attacked protesters. The man in charge was Yuri Krysin, who admitted in court that he accepted 20,000 US dollars to organize a gang of thugs to attack Euromaidan activists. It is believed that Krysin, originally from Donetsk Oblast, was part of a criminal gang with links to Yuri Ivanushenko a former close associate of ex-president Viktor Yanukovych. Ivanushenko himself is suspected of playing a major role in recruiting gangs of Titushki to attack Euromaidan activists. It is believed that Jalal Aliyev was the one who delivered the fatal shot. Aliyev is now in hiding. The case dragged on for three years. The prosecutor's office shut down the initial investigation under murder charges and initiated new proceedings in which Krysin was charged only with hooliganism. This isn't the first time that this has occurred. In 2010, Krysin was originally accused of murder, but then the charge was changed to manslaughter through carelessness. In 2017, the judge ended up serving Krysin to four years in prison and two years probation. He would only have to serve time in jail if he commits a crime within the next two years. He paid a court fee of $440. Journalists and witnesses at the initial sentencing reacted like this. In 2019, the Court of Appeals changed the sentence to five years in prison, which he is now serving. Veremy was one of the many journalists attacked during the Euromaidan revolution. 
Take your hands off me. Do you not see that I'm a member of the press? Take your hands off me. Several activists and journalists were abducted for their involvement in the Automaidan, a movement affiliated within Euromaidan, consisting of drivers who would protect the protest, supply revolutionary camps, block streets, bring people to protest outside of anti-Ukrainian government officials' homes, and to refuge at St. Michael's Square for free. Some are still missing to this day. One month after Veremi's killing, in March of 2014, journalist and activist Andriy Shikun, who led the Euromaidan Crimea movement, was abducted by pro-Russian forces and held for 11 days in secret detention with several other detainees. They had just succeeded in breaking a vacuum of fear that had set in Crimea, organizing small gatherings of journalists with more and more attending each day, eventually gathering over 200 journalists together, breaking the vacuum of protests and fear that Russia had set. Anatoly Kowalski and I had arrived at the train station, and there we were recognized. I was traveling to and back from the Euromaidan in Kyiv, so everyone knew me and saw me. They simply recognized me and attacked. Twisting our hands, they brought me out and gave me to the police at the station. I was asking, who are you? What is happening? They stayed silent. They only took our passports. And after that, high-ranking officials came out. I asked again, who are you? What do you mean by high-ranking officials? They stayed silent. They said, all right, let's take them. I immediately received a blow to the head. They threw a bag over my head, tied my hands up, threw us into this Volkswagen car. They took our phones, tied our hands and eyes with scotch tape and drove off. In the impromptu torture chamber, he was forced to take his clothes off and shot at with air guns, the plastic pellets remaining embedded in his legs and hands today. Beaten, electrocuted, and threatened to have his ears cut off because he was wearing a Ukrainian Orthodox cross. There were three groups of thugs, locals, Russians, and the worst of the torturers from Chechnya, all answered to a figure Shikun later recognized when he turned up a month later in Slavyansk in the Donbass, Igor Gurkin, also known as Strelkov. Gurkin would go on to be a self-proclaimed defense minister of Russian-backed militants in Donetsk Oblast. The next day I figured out that this was the group operating under Girkin, who we know from Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. They called themselves Special Ops. The Special Ops were the ones who were attacking and questioning me. As I understand it, it was the ones under Girkin's orders who were torturing me. I recognized a Chechen accent, Armenian too maybe, but definitely Chechens that were torturing me. For Shikun, the physical torture he endured wasn't the most difficult experience he lived through. It was the psychological torture that was used on them. Three times they were driven out to be released via prisoner swaps. The first two times failed, with the Russian officers then telling the prisoners that Ukraine didn't want them and that they meant nothing. 
The most morally difficult thing was to live through the first failed prisoner swap. In the first swap, when you feel you are almost about to be free, but they didn't swap us, and they returned us once again to where we were sitting. That was a shock. You start thinking, no way, we were so close to attaining freedom and liberty. It was the scariest thing I lived through. Not the fact that they were beating and torturing me. I was morally prepared for that. I knew it was a risk. I had even sent my wife and children to my parents in Lviv, western Ukraine, weeks before I was abducted. After the referendum, Berkut officers arrived and kept the prisoners up until four in the morning, forcing them to sing the Russian national anthem over and over again. They would force us to sing the Russian national anthem, and they would beat us if we couldn't. And then, after they asked, and can you sing the Ukrainian national anthem, Anatoly Kowalski, he would sing the anthem at the protest. He has an amazing voice. So he sang the Ukrainian anthem. The acoustics in the basement were great. We heard our anthem loud and clear. We all knew the words. Twenty times we sang on Euromaidan. And oh, how they hit him for it. It was hard. It was like in a movie. We were singing the Ukrainian anthem knowing that. And they beat us for it. Shikun was lucky. He and other Ukrainian activists were dumped at the administrative boundary of Crimea and allowed to live. More than a dozen ethnic Crimean Tatars simply disappeared. As the occupation of Crimea drags on to its sixth year, Russia continues to systematically persecute journalists and bloggers who report anything other than the Kremlin-approved narrative. Over 67 activists have been arrested and sent to prison, including citizen journalist Ruslan Sulimanov, who received a 15-year sentence, Nariman Memedimanov, and 24 online streamers who were detained in March of 2019. Journalism has suffered. All the good journalists have left Crimea and come to Ukraine. I stayed until the very end. Russia has arrested civic bloggers and forced out prominent journalists like Alina Smutko and Taras Ibrahimov, banning them from Crimea for 34 years. At this point, independent journalism has been practically squeezed out of the occupied peninsula. Ukraine post Euromaidan did not achieve what people imagined when they were gathering on the streets back in 2013 and 14. An invasion and a war and the growing desire to control domestic developments by then-President Poroshenko slowed the country's spark of progress. Freedom of speech was in a much better place than under Yanukovych, but journalists remained at risk. Nothing drove that home more than the car bomb assassination of Belarusian Russian journalist Pavel Sheremet in July of 2016. Sheremet was the executive director of Ukrainska Pravda, an online newspaper that was co-founded by Georgi Gangadze, a journalist who was himself murdered 16 years prior to Sheremet's own death. His murder was linked to then-president Leonid Kuchma, although Kuchma has always denied any involvement. Gangadze's death shook Ukraine to its core. He was killed by a police general after being abducted in central Kyiv. It took more than 10 years for the Ukrainian justice system to prove Gangadze's killers, Alexei Pukach 
and three other Interior Ministry officers guilty and sentenced them. In 2010, investigators revealed that former Interior Minister Yuri Kravchenko, who died by suicide in 2005, ordered Bukic to kill the journalist. But even 19 years after the murder, the Prosecutor General's Office of Ukraine is still investigating who might have ordered Gamgadze's killing amid an abundance of evidence that points to ex-President Kuchma and other top officials. As we mentioned, Kuchma and the other officials have always denied involvement. Miroslava Gangadze, Georgi's wife, spoke to the Kiev Post as a part of our Dying for Truth series last year about Pukach. He's a dangerous man. He was not involved only in Georgi's murder. He was involved in other uh, harassment of journalists and political activists. Pukic's arrest was very important to Miroslava. It was only after his detention that she came back to Ukraine for the first time, as she's been residing in the United States. If you look around the world, the cases uh, of murder of, or harassment or intimidation of journalists are not uh, solved. Usually the perpetrators and instigators got uh, unpunished, crimes got unpunished. And I think the, the culture of political corruption in this country is so deep that and everybody is so dependent and on each other, I mean, the leadership, the politicians, that they have some internal agreements that we don't even know, and they are hiding, obviously hiding their crimes. Despite the fact that the investigation has never managed to prove Kuchma's role in the murder of Gangadze, his wife is confident that the second president of Ukraine bears responsibility for the murder, something she believes when recordings of Kuchma were leaked after the journalist's murder prove. I think Georgi was murdered because President Kuchma was talking about him in his office. I heard those tapes. I recognized those voices. But the question remains, was he really wanted to Georgi to be murdered? Or somebody listening or recording him did something, organized something to, uh, to make it look like he is responsible. So 16 years and two revolutions later, history repeated itself with another journalist at Ukrainska Pravda, Pavel Sheremet. More than three years after Sheremet's murder, the authorities had not managed to identify the killers, let alone find the organizers of the murder. Anya Babinets, the chief editor of Slitsvoda.info, started an independent investigation of the Sheremet murder. Бачили, що це якісь очевидні речі, але правоохоронці з якихось причин пускали, так? We saw that the police missed the obvious things, and we were interested in why that happened. Was it just unprofessionalism when they forgot or missed evidence, or was it done on purpose? I guess it's a question that we ask in almost every story that we do. I believe that our investigations motivate the police to do their job properly because they understand that they are not the only ones investigating. But in December of 2019, the police had made an apparent breakthrough, arresting and charging Donbass war veteran Special Operations Sergeant Andriy Antonemko as the suspected perpetrator of the murder working for an unknown organizer. 
Yulia Kuzmenko, a pediatric cardiosurgeon and army volunteer, was alleged to have been the woman who attached the bomb to the journalist's car and detonated the device remotely the next morning. And army medic Yama Duhar was suspected of helping prepare the crime. The police believed she was caught on camera photographing the location of CCTV cameras days before the murder. However, the three-and-a-half-year investigation contains inconsistencies and flaws. On January 30th, 2020, then-Prosecutor General Ruslan Ribeshapka said that additional evidence is needed for the murder case to go to trial, and activists and Sheremet's colleagues say that evidence against the suspects is not strong. Even Sheremet's mother, Lyudmila Sheremet, stated that she does not know if the suspects are guilty or not, but is afraid that innocent people may be hurt as officials try to show that they're making progress in the case. On May 20th, President Zelensky gave a press conference to summarize the results of his first year in office and called out Interior Minister of Ukraine, Arsen Avakov, stating, His responsibility today is the case of Sheremet. He started it and he has to finalize it to get a result so that those who killed Sharamet are punished. Ukrainian media reports in late May suggested that the case would be wrapped up and sent to court within days. Ukraine's authorities have adopted a number of long-awaited reforms since the 2014 revolution, including a law on media ownership transparency. We're definitely not in the same country as it was pre and during the Euromaidan revolution. But certain old Soviet-era habits and the tight grips of oligarchs over the media and officials have not been fully broken. To all the countries of the former Soviet Union, look at us. This is possible. Even with the change of government in 2019 and hope for the new president Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine can still be a dangerous place for journalists. Just one year ago, in May of 2019, after Zelensky's landslide election, investigative reporter and blogger Vadim Kamarov was brutally beaten to death in Cherkasy, 180 kilometers southeast of Kyiv, for exposing corruption in his town. Kamarov had made multiple enemies throughout his career. Described as a very kind friend and loving husband, at work, he was fearless and daring. Most local journalists from Cherkasy were too scared to speak out. Because Cherkasy itself has a particularly bloody history when people try to expose corruption. This included the deaths of Igor Grushnitsky in 1996 because he was a witness against the son of a Cherkasy official, and that of Nikola Rakshanov, a journalist of the newspaper Facts, who died in August of 1998 after sustaining a fatal brain injury. Despite doctors' opinions, police investigators refused to consider that this injury was not natural. And more recently, 58-year-old Vasil Seryenko, a journalist, Madan civic activist, and public figure, was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered by bandits in 2014. Sergienko was known for his articles undercovering corruption connected with members of ousted President Viktor Yanukovych's Party of Regions. Unlike most journalists, Kamarov was not afraid to name people in his stories. The president of the National Union of Journalists of Ukraine, Serhii Tomilenko, said, Vadim was inconvenient for many local politicians. He highlighted topics of corruption in Cherkasy and covered other notorious themes. And not everybody in the city took it well.
Before his brutal death, Kamarov had received threats and survived several assassination attempts. In 2016, an unknown man tried to shoot Kamarov at his own dacha, a summer house out in the countryside. Somebody rang the door, Kamarov went to open it. And I open the gate and don't see anyone. Then I look around and see a man pointing a gun at me with his two hands. That was Kamarov describing the events after the assault. He managed to hide and the bullet hit the wall where his head was a moment earlier. I wouldn't change my views. Moreover, I don't have much time left on earth. We are all sinful and die one day. For so many years, I didn't change my beliefs and I won't start now. A year later, in 2017, an unknown man attacked Kamarov in the hall of a residential building, wounding him in the leg. After this attempt, police gave Kamarov a bulletproof vest. Kamarov's friends say that he was so used to the threats that he didn't take them seriously anymore. Vyacheslav Kiri, an anti-corruption activist in Cherkasy, and Kamarov's friend stated, Kamarov told me that someone was preparing an assault on him. We didn't take it seriously. You know, he was shot there. He showed me the place where it happened and the hole from the bullet. We even laughed at it because Vadim used to take part in professional shooting competitions and he understood that it was impossible to miss the person when you were shooting from one and a half to two meters with a sport gun. We laughed at it because it meant that someone wanted to scare him, not hurt. But it ended for him the way it ended. Although we are still waiting to hear who will be charged and held responsible for his murder, Kamarov's friends and colleagues have two main theories. Either Kamarov was attacked due to a long-term conflict with the local branch of the Nationalist Party Svoboda, or because of his recent investigation into violations and corruption at the local prison number 62. Kamarov accused Alexander Yushinka, the deputy head of the prison, and Mikola Babichev, an alleged top crime boss, of selling drugs and alcohol to inmates. Kamarov's last published story detailed human rights abuses and corruption inside the prison. The police have still not identified the attackers. Kamarov's death drew another wave of attention to the risk that journalists take to work in Ukraine. Some pointed out the brutal attacks and killings in Cherkasy Oblast, how Kamarov was one of the very few to speak out because of the bloody history there. Ukraine is growing safer for journalists, but not entirely. The risk of violence against them, the authorities' poor investigation of attacks on the press, and the lack of accountability for violence against journalism remains. But as the country attempts to implement reforms and chart a path to Europe, the work of journalists is more important than ever. They are one of the few groups of people who can hold Ukraine's leaders accountable to their promises. We hope that the Kiev Post's Dying for Truth project will help ensure that we won't need more projects like this in the future, and that one day we will look back on violence against journalists as a relic of the past. Until then, we'll be here, ready to report on press freedom in Ukraine. You can check out our previous Dying for Truth stories on our website at kievpost.com. 
and make sure to subscribe to the Kiev Post in order to stay on top of what's happening in Ukraine. It's less than $45 a year and helps support independent journalism, which is important not only in this country, but globally. So stay safe, stay home, and subscribe to the Kiev Post. Thank you.